0: This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit CrestviewHutch.org. Back in the golden age of Saturday Night Live, um, that's a show that's on Saturday night after the news, um, we were introduced to a character named Mr. No-Depth Perception. Um, This was played by Kevin Nealon, that kind of puts this in the late 80s. So in one skit, The Dinner Party... Uh, Mr. No Depth Perception opens the scene by shouting needlessly, "Hey honey, now that the furniture's here, this place is really starting to feel like home." And his wife, ever patient and aware of his troubles, says, "Honey, you don't have to yell. I'm 1 foot away." He replies, "Oh, sorry. Let me let me get this tray for you cuz they're setting up for a dinner party." And uh, he grabs the tray and starts walking to the dining room table, but there's a problem. A tray of food in the hands of someone with no depth perception is inevitably gonna lead to trouble. So his wife tries to warn him, no, Jerry, no, let me do it. But not to be contained, Mr. No-Depth Perception retorts, nonsense, as he holds the tray and stands five feet away from the dining room table and drops the tray of food to the floor. So uh, the jingle for this skit is catchy too. Is it far, far away or just close by? It all looks the same when seen from the eye of the guy they call Mr. No-Depth Perception. He can't explain why to his brain it all looks like a two-dimensional plane. He's Mr. No-Depth Perception. When Mr. No-Depth Perception is nearby, you might get an earful because he thinks he's closer than he actually, or farther away than than he actually is, or you might be hit with a food tray or might get some other effect. Um, when driving, we experience the same thing, because if you're a driver, you look in your rear view mirror and it has that announcement there that we just ignore, but it's there for all of us to know that objects in mirror are closer than they appear, uh, because we don't, it's kind of the automaker's way of reminding us, don't make depth perception mistakes. They're actually closer than they appear to be. So today we come to Luke chapter seven, and I wonder if we have depth perception issues when it comes to Jesus. Now, what would depth perception issues about Jesus look like? Or what would they be about? Quite simply, we think he's further away than he actually is. Many of us know that he came to rescue people like us. We know that he came for people who don't have their act together. We affirm and celebrate that we love him because he first loved us that it's his kindness that has led us to repentance. But when we think of it, like when we think about our trouble, when we think about all that we're going through in life, we're really not sure if he's that close. We know Jesus has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. We even understand, like Matthew 18 says, that when we meet together to wrestle with complex relational issues, that he's promised to be there, even if it's just two or three of us. He's promised to be there. But when it comes to the mess of our lives, we wonder if he's got time to mess with us. We think he's far away. We don't think he's close by. And I have a hunch that as I talk about this, some of you are doing mental gymnastics right now in your mind. You're thinking, well, nobody believes such things. I mean, we all know he's close by. But if we're honest, I think we tend to think that God's priorities are for more important things than the kind of things that we wrestle with or the kind of things we struggle with. And at its most basic level, we're forgetting that Jesus came for us. He came for us in our mess. He cares about us. He's not bothered or burdened or thinking that your concerns don't matter. He loves you. I love how John put that right at the end of communion. Hey, Jesus loves you because we so often forget it. Now, unfortunately, we've probably helped promote this kind of thinking in the church world. We put the spotlight on certain people or certain ways of doing things. Um, and we're, what we're doing subtly when we're putting the spotlight there is we can easily think precisely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> so we're, we're more wowed by someone who just appears to live rightly than the one who has saved them to make that possible. So you think of someone in the church who's really devoted to prayer and you're like, man, I can't believe them. And we're more wowed that they're devoted to prayer than we are that a savior rescued them from themselves and devoted them to prayer. We see someone who knows the word really well. And we're awed by that person who knows the word rather than the person who changed their hearts to wanna know his word. The wow factor is for those who really appear to be living this. Um, And what what we've seen so far in the gospels is, Jesus wasn't wowed by religious people. Uh, He wasn't wowed by their determination. He wasn't wowed by their devotion to do the right thing. In fact, he had strong words for religious people, challenging them to lean into him. Don't miss me. You want to fast, you want to keep all your observances, you want to do all your stuff, don't miss me. That's what he's appealed to them. So in the church, we it kind of begins with us. We can subtly start to think that Jesus would care more for me if I did this or that thing and did it rightly. And we're adding to the gospel. We're distorting the gospel when we think this way. So a passage like we see today will help us see that Jesus is in Equal opportunity God. <laughs> you know, he's, he's after the needs of everyone. <clears throat> he loves all kinds of people. He dispenses radical mercy to everyone he meets. This is incredible. So no matter what kinds of needs we have, he's ready and he's already drawing near. He's like way down the road ahead of us. He's already on the way. So today we're in for some good times as the good news of great joy for all people comes near to us. Uh, This is so good. No matter what we're going through, Jesus is coming near us. And I hope this encourages all of us to lean into him. So join me in Luke chapter seven as we see three kinds of people or three people to whom Jesus draws near, three people to whom Jesus draws dear. So Luke seven, one to 35, that's our passage. I'm gonna read all these verses so we can read them all at once. And then at the end, I'll say, this is God's word, thanks be to God. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. And so, um, this is God's word, thanks be to God. So, um, shall we all clear our throats together so you can be ready for thanks be to God? That's like revving up the engine. Um, Okay, good. Uh, Luke 7, 1 to 35, here we go. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but I but just say the word and let, your servant, let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent uh, returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is at least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So three people to whom Jesus draws near. And you probably saw where I'm getting my outline, these three episodes, three kinds of people that Jesus draws near to. And first of all, Jesus comes near the humble. That was verses 1 to 10. So we transition from Jesus laying out what it means to follow him. That was last week's sermon. So if you didn't get that, uh, you can download it on the website. But what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And he's laid that out. It's called the Sermon on the Plain at the end of Luke 6. So after he's laid that out, he enters Capernaum. And were met with an immediate need. A centurion servant was sick to the point of death. And this servant wasn't just any kind of servant. It was a precious servant. So maybe like your most valuable employee or the most valuable person, one of the most valuable people in your life is sick to the point of death. So the centurion sent Jewish elders to Jesus to help with this dilemma of Jesus coming near to heal. And they seek to boost the centurion's resume. Did you catch all that? Trust us, he's worthy of this, Jesus. I mean, he loves our country and he even built the synagogue. And Jesus, this is just amazing to me that Jesus actually goes with them. I would be like, like I don't need this resume. <clears throat> a lot of times we help with benevolence needs in our community and, and when uh, they call in and they, they wanna talk to a pastor, they figure like I'm the most merciful guy they can talk to. Um, and they lay out this resume of, you know, listen, like I have five grandchildren living with me and there's this need and we have this ongoing illness and there's, you know, it's just, listen, I don't need the resume. I'm ready to give you mercy. <laughs> like, I, it, it's not like, oh, that's a real need. If you're calling me, you probably have a need. I get it. You know, so it's kind of what's going on here. They're building up this resume. Like, trust us, he's worthy. He loves the country. He's like an Israelite man, you know, even though he's a Gentile. And he's even helped us build the synagogue. So Jesus goes with them, that's pretty amazing. And G- Jesus draws near though, as he draws near, something unique happens. That now the man, uh, the centurion sends his friends. So it's one thing to send like the religious people you know to try to convince the religious person to do the religious thing. It's another thing to like send your friends. like. Um, like here's the honest story, Jesus. Here's the real news. And when he sends his friends, they say, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Not worthy to have you come under my roof. And I didn't presume to come to you for this reason, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, like you don't have to do anything. You could just say the word now and I would be, and my servant would be healed. And the the guy adds, I know what it's like to have some measure of authority. I say, go, come, or do this, and it happens. And so Jesus wants to drop the spotlight there. Right? Uh, Wouldn't that be amazing? It says that Jesus marveled at this guy. Can you imagine that? He marveled at him. Jesus looks at him and goes, like, and think about all that has happened in the context of Mark or Luke up to this point. Like we saw all those questions from religious people, those five sets of questions that came in, in Luke 5 and 6. And then all this Jesus laying out, like here's what followers of mine look like. And it's kind of been a, uh, like a line in the sand that like who's gonna cross this? And then he walks into Capernaum and a Gentile centurion just says, you don't have to do anything, just say the word. Just say the word. I trust you that much. I know who you are. I get it. Like I... Like, I know you have the, you can just say the word because you're one that has authority and my servant will be healed. And Jesus just says, this is incredible. I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. Like all the people who should know what I'm here to do don't get this, and he does. And then almost in passing, we get the, the ending of the story in verse 10. And when the friends returned, they found the servant well. You know, it's just like, that's, yeah, that's an added benefit, but really the point is just this guy um, and his amazing faith. So Jesus comes there and he expresses marveling at the faith of this Gentile in Capernaum. You know, I think sometimes when we're coming near to Jesus or uh, we're we're considering coming near to Jesus, um, we're inviting people to Jesus, we have an expectation like those Jewish elders that to come to Jesus, we need an impressive resume of good things that we've accomplished. So, you know, like, hey, I I went to church as a child or I grew up at Crestview or I did this thing. You know, we got this impressive resume, Um, good things we've accomplished. We talk about how long we've been in pleasant association with church things. You know, like from a child, I knew this and oh man, it's been good. You know, I've just loved Jesus all my life, you know. Um, Or even like what a reasonable person we are. You know, I try to do good stuff. You know, Jesus is going to come near me. I, I'm to, I try to do good things. Um, and we, we can think that about other people. Like God's not going to help them because they're not a very good person or they've never been in church in their life or, you know, what do they have to lean on? Or we think that about ourselves. Like, man, I've had a rough week. I was short with my wife. My kids are frustrated with me. The work isn't going so well. God's not going to come near me. And, and all Jesus is asking for is just that those who come to him would come humbly, that they would give up on themselves, that they would give up on the qualifications. Like, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy. Just come with humility. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm there, yeah. So this man is commended not for his resume, but for his trust that Jesus can just speak the word and heal a servant. And that's precisely what happens. Last week we were told, Jesus told us in understanding what it looks like to follow him, that it's the poor who get the kingdom. Like those who are like, don't have the resources. They're the ones that get the kingdom. So I wonder if we're settling in on this idea that Jesus comes near the humble. He just comes near those who have nothing else to put confidence in but him. He comes near the humble. That's not where this passage ends. I mean, there's still more. There's another story here. Um, Look at verses 11 through 17. We have Jesus, another person that Jesus comes near. He comes near the suffering. He comes near the suffering. This is maybe one of my favorite stories in the entire Gospel of Luke verses 11 through 17. So from Capernaum, Jesus goes to a town called Nain with his disciples and many people. He draws near to the gate of the town. And remember what I told you, behold, that's a big deal in Luke. When you see behold, I just write look real big, right in the margins and on the O's, I usually put little eyes at the bottom like they're looking at something. Uh, So behold, look, look what's going on here. A man has died and he's being carried out. And look at his resume. He's the only son of his mother, And she's a widow, which means she has nothing left in life. Like in that culture, we know that that meant like, she's gonna have a rough life. She doesn't have a husband to provide for her. She doesn't have a son. So, and he's the only son. There's no one else that they're looking to. So a large crowd from town was with her. And you see this pattern over and over in the gospels. Watch when Jesus shows up at a situation, we see this pattern. Jesus sees her, he has compassion on her and he acts. So he sees her. I mean, if you just mark that down, he sees her. That's where Jesus begins. How many times does Jesus Jesus just see someone? He sees them and then he has compassion and then he acts. Over and over again, that happens in the Gospels. So you can imagine her suffering being great. Someone has died, it was her only son. And it wasn't like a little child's son, it was just her only son, it was probably a grown up son. And she's a widow. She didn't have any prospects to rest on. And Jesus' words are almost startling. Like we know what's happened, we've been around Jesus enough to know, like he just throws stuff out there, but he says to her, don't cry. I mean, like our jaws ought to drop. Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? She's a widow. Her only son has died. What do you mean don't cry? Don't weep? I have every reason in the world to weep. Do you understand like what I'm going through? Don't weep. So, I mean, that's one thing just to tell her like almost curtly, like don't weep. Okay. Who is this guy? So that's one thing, but then he goes up and do you see in the text, he touches the buyer or basically the casket that carries the body. He he touches it, he touches it. Does anyone know anything about Jewish law and what that would mean? You know, you touch a casket of a dead person, you're ritually unclean, I think for seven days. So what if the person he touches is actually alive? He's not ritually unclean. (laughs) So he touches this casket. So in the technical confines of Jewish law, he should be unclean. And so all the people carrying it stop, like, who, what Israelite in their right mind just touched this thing? We're carrying it. We've endured this cross to be ritually unclean, to honor this dead person. Um, Why would someone come up and just touch this? They stop, and Jesus speaks again, Young man, I say to you, arise. <laughs> look at look at how emphatic the text is. And so the dead man sits up. <laughs> I mean, isn't that isn't that like very descriptive? Um, have you, you all ever been to a funeral where a dead person sat up and spoke? I was I was doing a funeral in in Texas one time, and uh, funeral directors have the best stories in the world. I mean, so when when I get a chance to do a funeral, I'm just I'm just pegging them for information to use someday in my life, you know. And this guy in Texas, I said, what's the craziest funeral that ever happened for you? And he said, well, there was a, he said it was a kind of a Southern, um, very rural family who had not been in the city much. And we had the body down front and it was, there was a horrendous storm outside. And uh, <laughs> the, the people, they were all, they were very sad. and Sorry, I'm about to give the story away. <laughs> This is so awful. Talking about a funeral, um, so they had I think like I think the name was like Billy Bob or something like this, and he's in the casket, and it's closed, and and um, all of a sudden it starts raining and thundering, and uh, no, it was their grandma, and Billy Bob was the guy who yelled out. So um, they're down in front, and the thunder is going, and all of a sudden all the power goes all the power goes dark and he said, uh, this guy stands up in the back and yells real loud. I'm sorry, grandma, I didn't mean to. (laughs) But even then the dead person didn't get up and speak. I mean, even though Billy Bob thought that, you know, it wasn't the dead person that got up and spoke. And this text is emphatic, the dead man spoke. The dead man sits up, speaks and Jesus gives him back to his mother. Um, remember Jesus in the story, Jesus is interested in showing compassion to the mom. So the spotlight is on the woman. Jesus saw her. He had compassion on her. So when this guy raises to life, this just was like an accomplice to the plan that Jesus had to show compassion. So Jesus just hands this son to his mom. And so she's the object of compassion. And people are filled with fear. They glorify God. There was awe among them because they saw what Jesus had done for the suffering family. And so, again, when we're suffering, I think we sometimes forget that Jesus is on the alert and he's ready to help us. He's ready to come near to us. As I suggested in the introduction, we tend to think that our suffering isn't something that Jesus would want to be bothered with. Um, we kind of have this Midwestern swagger that, um, you know, how are you doing? I'm okay. And, and I think what we say when we say we're okay, I mean, I get that. You know, it might just be that we don't have time to get into it all right now, or we don't trust that person enough to get into it all right then. Um, yeah. But I think we also have running through our minds like when we relate to God, Jesus has bigger things to deal with than me having a bad day, or than me going through this suffering. This little thing that I'm going through is nothing compared to people who have like horrendous diseases and suffering and persecuted people around the world. Those are the people that Jesus needs to be giving support to, not not little old me with my issues. Um, And today, will you just believe that Jesus sees you in your suffering? Will you just believe that, that he sees you in your suffering? He's not turning a blind eye to you. He's not turning a deaf ear to you. He's not ignoring his children when they cry out to him. He's near you and you're suffering. He's moved with compassion. I know we reference this so often from Matthew's gospel, but he invites all the weary and heavy laden to come near to him. And he's promising to give us rest. He's not saying all you who are weary and heavy laden, go out and figure out something else to do because there's other hurting people in the world that need my care. No, he's saying, I want all the people who are hurting to come near so that I can give you rest. He's wanting to show compassion to you. He's coming near to you in your suffering. He will act. You might say, well, I mean, what I'm in is an impossible situation. Sounds like a perfect thing for God to work in. Like he specializes in impossible situations. You might say, well, what I'm going through, this sickness may kill me. Right, it may kill your physical body. And what do you get? Heaven. Like the three guys in the fire, you know, in Daniel three, they said, uh, you know, we may die. (laughs) We may die king, but we're not gonna bow down to what you say. Like they knew that God had them no matter what. And you need to step into your suffering in that kind of confidence that Jesus has you no matter what. And he cares. He's not running away to play hide and seek with you when you're suffering. He's coming near. He's gonna move and he's gonna do something. Now, it might require patience, but he's gonna deliver you. He will come through, he can be trusted. So in these two stories, look at how Jesus is using all of his authority and power. He's using it not to pat people on the back who seem deserving or who have their act together, but he's coming near to help those who are needy, who are humble, who are in the thick of it. He's coming near to them and that's who he is. Jesus comes near the suffering. Third and finally, um, in verses 18 to 35, Jesus comes near the questioning. He comes near the questioning. Um, These are a lot of verses here, verses 18 to 35. At the end of this episode in Nain, we heard in verse, Seventeen, that a report about Jesus had spread far and wide throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And this brings us into this final section. John's disciples reported all these things to John. John's in prison at the time. We know that from the other gospels. And so he sent some disciples with a question, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And just so that we're emphatic about what John's asking, we have it repeated again for us. We're told exactly how it shook down the disciples come and they ask, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And while they were there in verse 21, they saw people with diseases, plagues, evil spirits healed, and people who are blind given sight. And so Jesus says, I got an answer for your question. Why don't you go back to John and tell him this? Um, These evidences from Isaiah 35 were already occurring, John. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35 verses five and six. These evidences from Isaiah 35 are already occurring, John, though the Romans are ruling the land and the scribes and the Pharisees are sniffing around with everything I do and say, and as you're rotting away in Herod's prison, but don't you see, I've already begun to accomplish the age of restoration. This is it, I am the one. Like everything is happening exactly like the Bible said it would. That's your answer, John. You know the scriptures, you know what Isaiah 35 says. Blind are gonna receive their sight, lame are gonna leap for joy. Good news, preach to the poor. These things are gonna be true. And that's our signal that the age of restoration has begun. So Jesus continues with a little side point after John's messengers leave. He asks the crowd who they expected to meet when they saw John. Did they expect to meet a wimp like a reed just shaking in the wind, like the wind's blowing, or I guess to translate this into Kansas vernacular, what'd you expect to see like a Bradford pear tree shaking in the wind? You know, just some brittle thing that's going to fall over and tear our roofs up anyway, you know, whatever. Um, did you expect to see that? Or did you see, uh, expect to see a man dressed in soft clothing, like some elitist sporting nice threads and living a soft life? Is that what you expected to see when you went out into the wilderness to see John? No, you went to see a prophet, and John wasn't just any prophet. He came to go before Jesus like Malachi 3.1 spoke of. So no one is greater than John when it comes to setting up Jesus' coming. And now, because that Jesus is here, the point is realized, and it's the case that um, anyone who believes in Jesus is greater than John because John's pointing to something that's here. And now all of us who believe that, we're in on all these benefits that this savior came to bring. And so people just side up according to what they knew of John. That was that ending um, in verses, um, yeah, verses 29 and 30. Um, so yeah, some went had been baptized with John and they were like, that's right. And others were like, I'm not doing this. That's crazy. John was a little wacko. And so then Jesus just draws them out. He says, we all have opinions about John, great. Verse 31, Jesus says, to what shall I compare this generation to? And what are they like? I love how Ralph Davis helped me understand this. So here's how he puts it. This is the first use of this phrase, this generation in Luke's gospel. And it consistently refers to those who are opposed to Jesus. So you might just put a note out in your Bibles, this generation equals those who are opposed to Jesus. The phrase is not a time indicator, but a hostility indicator. And Jesus likens this generation to the fickleness of children at play in verse 32. The kids providing the music are frustrated. They tell their playmates, we played wedding music for you, but you haven't danced. You just turn crabby and say, we don't wanna play wedding. And so we cranked up a funeral dirge and you say, ah, we don't wanna play funeral either. And Jesus is saying, that's how the unbelief of Israel is nothing satisfies it. No matter the approach, it will always find something unsuited to its taste. And Jesus then shows how this playground perversity works out in Israel. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, why, a man a glutton and a wino, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John's too weird, Jesus is too wild, No matter how God speaks to these people, unbelief is not satisfied. So contrary to what we often assume, unbelief is not thoughtful and rational, but twisted and perverse. And yes, my whole point here is that Jesus comes near these kinds of people. He comes near people who have these questions, but he's pressing them past their questions. Like he's coming near and he's patient with those who have questions. Like John, he gives him an answer. Look, the scriptures say, yes, you're the, you were pointing to me and I'm the one who was to come. We must realize that doubts come along the way. And like Jesus, we must seek to help those who are doubting to get help. If maybe we're the ones doubting, we need to lean into him. And yet we also hear Jesus communicate in this last point that we should be careful when we make excuses about why we can't believe. We have to realize what unbelief is at its core. So today you may be here with all kinds of questions and Jesus is coming near you to demonstrate patience. He's, and he's wanting you to draw, he's wanting to draw you out of your questions to him. He's wanting to draw you out into life itself, into all that he is. So will you come to him? Will you come to him? Or are you gonna be like these fickle playground children and say, well, nope. All the people that talked about him, nope, they're wrong. Oh, no, Jesus is wrong too. Nope, that's not enough. I hope you can just see that for what it is. It's not like you being intelligent. You've actually made yourself a God that you're serving. And Jesus is coming near to those who have questions and saying, just look to me. Trust me, believe in me. I'm the fulfillment. So in conclusion today, we've seen these three people to whom Jesus draws near. He comes near the humble. He comes near the suffering. And he comes near the questioning. Um, the, this passage has really pressed a reality into our lives that no matter where we find ourselves, Jesus is coming near no matter where you find yourself. I mean, this is, maybe you're questioning. Maybe you're going through such horrendous suffering that you think, believe in Jesus, I'm going through this. You have no idea. Maybe you're leaning into all your resume and like, once I get good enough, then I'm gonna have some time for Jesus. You're never gonna be good enough. Just embrace your humility and lean into him. So today, would you just humble yourself Trusting that Jesus will make good on what he says and draw near to you. Uh, Like John said, when we had Lord's Supper earlier, will you just believe in him? Will you trust in him? Give up trying to fix all this on yourself. I think probably part of the reason, like all of these are exhausting, aren't they? Like in the first case, if we build our lives on making our resume great, it is exhausting. I mean, just the moment you've accomplished something, you realize there's something else you gotta accomplish. And if you keep thinking that you gotta do all that to get to God, you're never gonna be able to do enough. So Jesus is just saying, humble yourself before the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Just lean into him and say, I can't measure up. And I'm gonna go in with you, Jesus, or or suffering. If we wallow in that and we're just stuck there, of course there's hurt that people are going through in this room, I know. I mean, on top of all the stuff that we publish, I know all kinds of hurt that we can't publish because you've asked us not to. There's hurt that's going on in this room and it, it can just overwhelm you. And I'm saying to you today, Jesus gets it better than I do. Will you lean into him? Will you have a confidence in him? And even if you're questioning today, I mean, one question is gonna to lead to another. I think if you had all your questions answered, you wouldn't have faith in Jesus. You would have faith in yourself for asking the right questions. So all these are so overwhelming. And Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm already there. Come to me, come to me. For those of us who have done that, we've, we've come to Jesus. We've put all of our confidence in him. You're still gonna have doubts. And that's normal. You're still gonna, I mean, if there's no one ever greater than John the Baptist and he had questions, what does that tell us about us? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is staggering. That John the Baptist of all people would have questions about Jesus. And so I think some of you get like your faith rock. Sometimes you have a question that pops up and you're like, oh, I don't know about this anymore. Hey, you're just like John in prison. Wrestle with your questions. Jesus is near you, it's okay. You're gonna have questions, you're gonna have doubts. That's part of this. It's faith, it's faith for a reason. There's all this mystery in our faith for a reason. Again, if we had it all figured out on ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus. Um, So we're leaning into him. And I know some of you in this room, you're believers, you're facing suffering. Um, So I think I just keep coming back to that first point. Will you just embrace humility? Will you just lean into humility? You might say, well, you don't know how messed up I am. I can imagine, I can imagine how messed up you are. And Jesus is already there. He came for messed up people. So the quicker you can admit it, the quicker he can act. So just step into that. Uh, Humble yourself, admit your needs to Jesus and you're gonna find him to be on the move to you. He was already there. He was already there. So let's trust that our savior is nearer than we ever imagined. You know, I opened the sermon talking about this depth perception issue we have. That, that, and, I've, and this passage I hope has brought it home for you, that Jesus is way closer than we ever imagined. He's right there with us. He's right there with us. He's not sending us on a wild goose chase. He's not like purposely avoiding us. He's not saying, oh, I'm gonna hide, so let's see what they do now. No, he's, he's there. He is near you. So lean into him. Will you press on to know him? Let's know him as a near savior. And let's make him known to others so that we can glorify and enjoy him forever.